Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Chad, and we are joined by Jacome Tubiana, a researcher and journalist. Nicole, can you give us some background on U.S. policy towards Chad? Thanks, Judd. Here goes. The United States established diplomatic relations with Chad in 1960, following its independence from France. The first U.S. ambassador arrived in the capital, Fort Lamy, now known as Anjumena, in 1961. Several former U.S. diplomats said, quote, we didn't belong there. We had no trade or commercial interests, end quote. And, quote, the only person who would give a damn was the guy on the desk, end quote, back at the State Department. It's a classic. The French, of course, were more engaged. They had advisors in every ministry and an airbase to support military flights to France's atomic testing sites in the Indian Ocean. De Gaulle apparently had a fondness for Chad because Chadian troops played a key role in the liberation of Paris. The United States, however, tried to be relevant. There was a Peace Corps program and development projects. In 1968, Chadian President Tomba Baye met with President Lyndon Johnson and later visited Texas Tech University. Memorably, he attended the football game as a guest of honor. During the game, students held up the colored pieces of cardboard and made a flag of Chad. The band played the Chadian National Anthem and tears ran down Tamba Baye's face. A U.S. diplomat recounted the president said he had, quote, never heard his national anthem played with such verve and precision, end quote. In the late 1960s, Tamba Baye faced an insurgency led by northern rebel groups. Some of them eventually received help from Libya's new leader, Muammar Gaddafi. The United States was not in a position to assist, but U.S. officials encouraged France to back the government up, which they did intermittently. In 1975, Tumba was overthrown and killed, and the country entered a new phase of instability. The Libyans annexed the Ozu Strip, and rebel forces threatened the government. Hisseni Habre, one of the main rebel leaders, was appointed prime minister. He then fell out with the government, leading to serious fighting in the capital, and the U.S. Embassy was evacuated. Libya's involvement in Chad became a top issue for the United States. One former ambassador said that Gaddafi was having a field day. Habre rejoined the government, quickly fell out again with rivals, and then was chased out by the Libyans. This spurred the Reagan administration to go in big for Habre, even though one ambassador called him and his followers, quote, the least desirable anti-Libyan faction with no future in Chad, end quote. Nonetheless, the administration backed Habre to the hilt, spending perhaps half a billion dollars to put him into power. The United States armed him with considerable air and firepower in support of the Toyota Wars against Libya and its Chadian allies. Habre, who met with Reagan in the White House, was responsible for widespread political killings, systemic torture, thousands of arbitrary arrests, and the targeting of ethnic groups. He was convicted for his crimes in 2016 and died this year of COVID-19. 
1990, after eight years of Habre's rule, a former army chief, Idris Deby, led his own rebel movement across the length of the country to seize power. It took three weeks from start to finish, and once in control, Deby worked closely with the United States, agreeing to help recover the Stinger missiles the U.S. government sold to Habre. The United States was very involved in Chad's burgeoning oil sector, which included significant investments by U.S. companies. Deby agreed to a World Bank deal to construct an oil pipeline from Chad to Cameroon, and in return, Chad would safeguard 10% of royalties and dividends in a, quote, future generations fund. Deby later reneged on his pledge. In the 2000s, Chad became entangled with the conflict in Darfur. Debbie's ethnic group, the Zagawa, lived on both sides of the border and fought with and led some of the Darfuri rebel groups. Eastern Chad became a transit point for fighters and arms and a major site for refugees. USAID and humanitarian workers were deeply involved in relief efforts. However, it was President Debbie's counterterrorism role which endeared him to the United States. His military served in the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali, fought Boko Haram in Nigeria, and battled ISIS and al-Qaeda affiliates in the Sahel. The U.S. government provided military training, and France scrambled its Mirage jets several times to ward off rebel incursions. In April 2020, Debbie died on the battlefield, fighting yet another band of rebels. His 38-year-old son, Mohammed Idris Debbie, was installed as Chad's new leader. The United States pledged to support a peaceful transition of power in accordance with the Chadian constitution. That is not happening. Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure as it relates to Chad? I think throughout the years in which Debbie is in power, more than 30, we turned a blind eye to all of the problems in this regime. Because it was such an important counterterrorism problem, we often turned a blind eye to the corruption, to sort of the ethnic tensions, uh, to the fact that this wasn't a democratic state, and that it was actually vulnerable to one day a rebel group like this taking power, or that Debbie himself, who had battled with health issues, could die. We had no preparation for succession, and we did very little to prepare for this inevitability. So I think that is at least one failure that certainly cuts across the entire 30 years. But here we are again, and I know Jerome will talk about this. We have a new transition, and I see us doing very little to shape this transition. We have followed the French in terms of supporting the new young Debbie's leadership. We're not doing a very significant job in terms of thinking about what are the milestones to get back to civilian rule, what will be the ultimate disposition of this 38-year-old and whether he could become president. We are standing by, presumably because the CT relationship is important, but I think it's sowing the seeds for more challenges and disappointments. Jerome, what should be the Biden administration's strategy towards Chad? Well, the, the U.S. administration should genuinely support a transition to democratic rule and to civilian rule, exactly like it actually does in, in neighboring Sudan, which means it should oppose what appears to be happening since April, which is in effect a coup and an attempt at a dynastic succession with a plan with, which was made in emergency, of course. But in the meantime, it should not have been a surprise. It was based on old, old discussions within the regime. You said there was no preparation and it's possible, but that's Already in 2016, 17, there was those discussions taking place in Chad. And at the time, I co-authored a, a report for the U.S. Institute of Peace, which, among other scenarios, mentioned the replacement of Idris Deby by his son, Mohammed. And at the time, the Chadian regime didn't like that report. But, well, this is what is happening now. Now it also means the U.S. administration should oppose the temptation among some U.S. allies, such as France or Egypt, whether in the name of stability or as you said, fighting against terrorism to support the, the staying power of a military tribally narrow junta, 
Rather, the US should also encourage those member states uh, within the African Union who are trying against others to support a democratic and civilian transition, beginning with the much needed revision of the transition charter. So that it includes firm commitments by the military council not to extend the transition beyond 18 months and not to let its members run for elections. Internally, the U.S. could also continue supporting the Chadian civil society. Let me ask you another question, because it seems like France has a certain goal with respect to Chad. And for the most part, whether it's the West Africans or the Central Africans, they don't seem to be that interested in in really pushing Chad towards civilian rule. So how does the U.S. work in an environment where most of its partners on the continent or in Europe don't seem to have the goals that you've laid out in mind? Well, um, I believe there is always value in showing coherence between countries experiencing similar problems. And the the fact that France is making Chad a kind of exception to its uh, policies in in other places, including uh, France has a quite different language, not only in Sudan, but also when there were similar attempts by military juntas to to take over very recently in Guinea, but uh, several times in the the recent past in Mali, while France didn't have the same language. Ultimately, I I believe that Chad policy of France and and some other countries is not really sustainable, not only because fighting against terrorism is is not something that just requires punctual support to that kind of regime. There is no progress. The the results on the ground are, are not that effective. The root causes of the problem of the the difficulties of the Chadian army itself are not tackled, but also because uh, ultimately the Chadian example is not a good model for other partners of France and the West in the region. And uh, it weakens actually uh, democratic calls on the continent, including by the African Union itself. It's also, we we speak a lot about France, but but in the case of Chad, the African Union uh, has also made an exception to its own principles, which is damaging its own credentials on the continent. And uh, it's not a good model and it's not sustainable because ultimately I believe even the the current French government is not really moving into uh, strictly continuing uh, the old French France-Afrique politics. So there there may be opportunities for change. It's just really time to grab them actually and, and, and actually to act. So Nicole, how do we act? How do we implement what Jerome is talking about? Thanks, gentlemen. So let's say it together. It's okay to break with the French on Africa policy. We have seen 30 years of this approach not delivering the kind of democratic change that I think we would all like to see in Chad, though there have been some important moments of military cooperation. And there is an opportunity here for a real transition, as you've both pointed out. CT has, of course, trumped all. That's too narrow of a policy for the United States government and the rest of the world to be using when it comes to such an important country on the continent. And we need to get to a better place. So to do that, to really support a transition that takes into account all of the nuance around bringing some amount of civilian power into a junta, really requires some hardcore diplomacy in the sense of dedicated time and effort. This is primarily about the relationship between the State Department and DOD, as well as the White House, determining what the balance of priorities is going to be. But then it really becomes incumbent on a very, very experienced diplomat to spend a huge amount of time doing shuttle diplomacy to support, as Jerome has said, what it looks like to get to a transition charter that would be acceptable 
and actually have a chance of surviving within Shad. And Jerome, do you have one big idea, maybe even something outlandish, because it's Shad, to put on the table? It's interesting to look at, at Sudan because it's it's not only a neighbor of Chad, but but also a very interesting possible model uh, for Chad. And France suggested quite explicitly that Sudan could be a model, and I think it should be taken seriously, maybe even more seriously than what uh, Paris thinks. The Sudanese transition, of course, is, is not perfect. For the moment, it's more a power sharing deal between the military civilian revolutionaries and, and rebel groups, but at least there is some consensus, a broad consensus that it should lead to civilian democracy and to peace, and that it can benefit to the region. Some Sudanese recipes could, could be replicated in Chad, including the replacement of a purely military transitional council by a joint military civilian council, which would be inclusive of the opposition and, and civil society. Also, in Sudan, uh, the civilians were tasked with appointing most of the cabinets. And uh, also in Sudan, uh, inclusive negotiations with, with rebel groups took place outside Sudan. And that should definitely happen as well for Chad, outside Chad then. And then, and maybe it could slightly differ from Sudan, the Chadian rebels could join a sovereign national conference that would design a new constitution ahead of elections. Those are actually propositions which are meeting a broad consensus among Chadian players, and they should be taken seriously. Jerome, one of Chad's most striking geographic features is the Tbilisi mountain range. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to reach because of the limited infrastructure and because of the rebel activity there. But what do we need to know about this mountain range? And is there a future where a visit is possible? Oh, in fact, it's, it's not that difficult to visit. One would just need the Chadian government to allow visits, and it takes time because the area is, is wide and the roads are bad indeed, but it's rather safer than most places in the region because first, the local community, the Tubu, are actually pretty good at controlling the area, pretty much on their own, outside of state control, like they always did, including during the more than 30 years where the region was controlled by, by Tubu rebels. My, my last visit there was in 2015. I spent a month and it was really interesting for me in particular it was a lesson on early warning in, in the region. As analysts, we're always told to do early warning, but often in very generic terms like stability versus chaos and so on. And during that trip in Tibesti, everyone was somehow warning us of the next rebellion. And there was actually already a kind of proto-rebellion. Then that rebellion became real. Also to me, it somehow always remained a proto-rebellion, possibly because people were already fed up and, and disillusioned with earlier rebellions and also very divided. The Debye regime was excellent at fueling or just benefiting from such divisions. And in particular, it attempted to prevent the Tubu to link with the Zahawa community, that is Debye's own community and main support base. But in recent years, the Zahawa were increasingly turning against Debye. So the main game was to make sure those two communities, very military skilled and, and often rebel communities, did not agree, which is easy because they are in competition. They have been in competition in recent years for the gold, which was discovered in the Tibesti. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.